Today is, um, of all the days on the Christian calendar, this is the one. This is the day. This is the most important day because today is the day that points to the greatest sign that the world was ever given, which greatly coincides with our series um, we're doing at our core. And so today is our ninth value, and here's what the ninth value is. It says that we value radical evangelism. We value radical evangelism, and we expect signs and wonders to follow us as we make disciples of all nations. Now, this morning we're we're going to deal with with the greatest sign. Okay, so the three points that are on your sheet, that's what they're going to deal with. I need you to flip your sheet over, and we're just going to very quickly just break apart our our statement. Okay, our core value statement. Going to need to write down a lot of verses. Again, you're going to get lost at some point. And that's why you can either scan that QR code or you can go to our website, thegatheringnow.com, and these notes are already there. Okay? Take them, make them better, and share them with your friends. Let's break apart the statement. Number one, we value radical evangelism. By radical, what we mean is evangelism does not happen unintentionally. Okay? So the truth of the matter is radical is not really radical. It's just in our world it's radical, right? Because we expect that if we just love Jesus and stand next to somebody, they'll love Jesus too. That's not the way it works, okay? Radical means we don't don't expect it to happen unintentionally. The Great Commission involves a first step. Go. Matthew 28, 19. You got to go. So the kingdom grows through intentional steps. Matthew 11:12 says this, from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing and those and the violent take it by force, which is a really crazy verse. There's a lot of violence, a lot of movement, but what it is is there's movement. It's intentional. The kingdom of God advances intentionally. We value radical evangelism. We expect signs and wonders to follow us. Here's what this means. One, Jesus foretold them. Mark Chapter 16, 15 through 18, he said, And these signs will follow those that believe. And he started saying things that make us go, ooh. Like they'll cast out demons. I think he mentioned snakes. They'll speak in tongues. I mean, there's some crazy stuff in there, right? But the bottom line is Jesus actually foretold that we would see signs and wonders follow us if we believe. The church fulfills them. Acts chapter 2, verse 43 said about the early church that signs and wonders happened all the time. It was normal for them. What happened this morning with Patrick, that was happening all the time in living rooms around Jerusalem. The the crowd is fascinated by them. So Jesus foretold them, the church fulfills them, the crowd is fascinated by them. Matthew 15, 31, Mark 2, 12. Every time Jesus would perform a miracle, the crowd would be full of awe, which means they just went, wow. Okay? Okay? Number, number four, the kingdom is focused through them. What does that mean? It means that they point to the right foundation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. It says this. I start in verse 3. Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not, in, were not in persuasive words of wisdom, 
but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So signs and wonders, the kingdom is focused through them because they point to the right foundation. The, the right foundation is not how good I am, how good I can speak, or the next greatest speaker you hear. Because if it's about that, then if, let's be honest, we could just go home and find a better speaker somewhere. They're all over the internet, right? But signs and wonders point to the right foundation, which is what? The power of God. They proclaim the full gospel. Romans 15, 18 through 19. Paul actually talks about how the gospel was fully proclaimed because it was accompanied by signs and wonders. So we value radical evangelism. We expect signs and wonders to follow us as we make disciples of all nations. Making disciplers. That's part of our mission statement. It's not actually the way you normally hear the word. Typically people say, I want to make disciples. We believe you should make disciplers, and here's why. It's a clear command, Matthew 28, 19. He said to go and make disciples, right? Do this. It's hot in here, isn't it? If you shake your head, you'll get some air moving, and it'll help the people next to you. It won't help you at all, but do it as a servant. And then two, it's a continual process. Just jot down 2 Timothy 2, 2. It's not enough for you to be made a disciple. 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul said to Timothy, Now take what I've given to you and find men, faithful men, and entrust it to them. And it means that you take this, pass it on to faithful men, and then they'll take it and pass it on to faithful men. And it's a continual process. So we do not want to make disciples because when you make disciples, it stops at one generation. I'd like to make disciplers. Disciple someone who will disciple someone. Okay, so here's the bottom line. Signs and wonders point people to Jesus. And today we're going to learn that his death, burial, and resurrection comprise the greatest sign and wonder in history. Now, flip your sheet back over. Let's start with number one. How many of you went to secret church? I don't talk as fast as David Platt, do I? No. I don't even know if David Platt was talking. I think he has a button that he pushes. That yeah, was so good. Mm. All right, here we go. Number one, everyone hopes for a sign. Matthew 12, 28 to 40. While you're finding that scripture, let me just say this. I believe that we're all born unbelievers. But we're all looking for something to believe in. Okay? So when we talk about unbelief, that's everybody. All of us are born unbelievers, but we're all looking for something to believe in. So everyone hopes for a sign. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here's what I want you to get first. Unbelief wants more. Unbelief wants more. These leaders had seen or heard about 
all of these things before they asked Jesus to see more. Here's what they'd heard of. They'd seen mass healings, Matthew 4, 23 through 24. A leper cleansed, Matthew 8, 1 through 4. The centurion's servant was healed, Matthew 8, 5 through 13. Peter's mother-in-law was healed and demons were cast out, Matthew 8, 14 through 17. The healing of two demon-possessed men in Matthew 8, 28 through 34. A paralytic was healed and forgiven of his sins, Matthew 9, 1 through 8. A dead girl was raised and a bleeding woman healed, Matthew 9, 18 through 26. The blind received sight and demon-possessed people received freedom in Matthew 9, 27 through 34. They saw every bit of that and said, let me see a sign. Hello? Here's your sign. And they still wanted more. Matthew 12, 38. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. I mean, I have so much more respect for Jesus sometimes. I mean, why he didn't just hit him? I mean, he didn't have to hit him. He could have just gone lightning now. They see and hear about all that. Unbelief wants more. But unbelief needs less. Jesus said enough. Basically, he said this. I'm going to give you one sign, the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. Jesus was in the tomb three days and nights. Jonah came out of the fish alive with a message of power and forgiveness. Jesus came out of the tomb alive with a message of power and forgiveness. The sign of Jonah was a reference to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus looked at these men who wanted more and said, you, don't, you might want more, but you just need less. You just need one. I'm going to give you one sign, my death, burial, and resurrection. Everyone hopes for a sign, number two, but everything hinges on a sign. Everything hinges on a sign. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 13 through 19. Paul wrote this. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Our faith, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we've even been found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those, of you, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Everything hinges on a sign. Without the resurrection, we are empty. Verse 14 uses that word twice. It says, if Christ has not been raised, then your preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. That word for vain means empty. Here's what it means. Empty, vain, devoid of truth, vessels containing nothing. Empty-handed, without a gift. Have you ever gone to a party and you realize that you forgot a gift? It's an awkward feeling for most people. Some of you are like, I don't care. They're just glad to have me. I am the gift. <laughs> I don't like to be empty-handed. I don't like to be without a gift. Listen to this. It means one who boasts of faith as a possession, yet is without the fruits of faith. If the resurrection didn't take place, if the sign that Jesus said he was going to give them, the one sign did not take place, what it means is we could be boasting of faith as something we have and have no fruit of it. 
Satan's best strategy then is to create doubt about the resurrection and his only attempts through the years fall into two categories. And so here we go. This is, this is a blast. This is Josh McDowell stuff. Are you ready? Just put your pins down for a second. I don't think you're going to keep up with me. Just listen. Every attempt of Satan to create doubt about the resurrection of Jesus falls into two categories. One, occupied tomb theories, and two, empty tomb theories. So here we go. All the occupied tomb theories. I'm going to tell you what they say, and I'm going to tell you why they're wrong. Number one, the unknown tomb theory basically says this. Jesus' body was thrown into a common pit after being taken off the cross, and his disciples didn't know where the body was. So everybody, that, everybody that gets crucified, they pull him off, they pull the two thieves off, they throw them in a common pit, and everybody forgot where it was, and there were so many bodies in there, they couldn't find it. And everybody believed that for years, until 1968, when they found the remains of somebody who had been crucified in a private tomb. And that whole common pit thing was gone. Even if they had not known which tomb it was, Joseph of Arimathea would have known because Matthew 27, 59 through 60 says it was actually his tomb. This would be like you going to your neighborhood and forgetting where your house is. Stupid. Number two, the wrong tomb theory. It says that the women went to the wrong tomb, but Jesus was somewhere in the garden in another tomb. Here's what's wrong. If the women went to the wrong tomb, then Peter and John did and the Jews, and the Sanhedrin, and the Romans, and the guards who were guarding the tomb, and the man who owned the tomb, and even the angel who announced that Jesus was risen. Stupid. Third one, the legend theory says this. The stories of the resurrection were just that. They were stories. They were legends passed down over time. Impossible because the account of Jesus' resurrection actually circulated while the eyewitnesses were still alive. And they would have put an end to the myth and it wouldn't have survived. Stupid. Number four, spiritual resurrection theory. Love this. What it says, Jesus' body decayed in the grave, but his spirit was resurrected. So here's why it's wrong. In that day, in that culture, the Jews would never have bought the theory that Jesus rose again unless the body that came out looked like the body that went in. Go read John chapter 11 about Lazarus. Why, was that, why did that whole story cause a stir? John chapter 11, verses 45 through 47. It was because Lazarus came out, and they, everybody knew that's Lazarus, not a floating thing. It's Lazarus. It caused a stir. People rejoiced and worshiped God, and other people got together and had a meeting and tried to figure out how to get rid of Jesus because it was an actual physical resurrection. The disciples actually initially thought that Jesus was a spirit. It's in the Bible. And Jesus told them in Luke 24, 37 through 39, that he was not Finally, spirits don't eat fish. Luke chapter 24, verses 42 through 43, Jesus actually prepared breakfast after he was resurrected and ate with them. I'm pretty sure what they did not see on the beach was a fish just float up in the air and disappear. Stupid. How, the hallucination theory. This is actually the most popular of all the occupied tomb theories. And what it says is that people only thought they saw Jesus, but really they were hallucinating. And if you think about it, there's some credibility there. That, you kind of go, okay, that could happen, except for one small medical fact. Hallucinations are very personal. And almost, it's almost impossible for two people to have the same hallucination at the same time. 
So the Bible records in 1 Corinthians 15, 6 that over 500 people saw Jesus at one time. And sometimes when critics try to get rid of one miracle, they create a greater miracle. Because for 500 people to have the same hallucination at the exact same time is a greater miracle than the resurrection itself. It's like when you go to college and your professor gets up and says, you know, when they crossed across the Red Sea, it wasn't really a sea. It was more like two inches of water. Don't you just want to raise your hand and go, dude, how in the world did like all those people drown in two inches of water? That's amazing. <laughs> Stupid. Empty tomb theories. So those are all the occupied tomb theories. These are the empty tomb theories. Number one, the most popular of the empty tomb theories is actually rec recorded in Scripture. Matthew 28, 11 through 15 says this, that the body was stolen by the disciples. They stole the body while the guards were sleeping and they made up the resurrection to kind of kickstart Christianity. Okay? Here's why it's wrong. One, if the guards were asleep, how did they know who took the body? Two, guards were put to, to death for sleeping while on guard. The guards would have to be deep sleepers not to be stirred by the movement of a two-ton stone. Now, I am a deep sleeper. Wendy told me this again this morning. She said, last night I didn't sleep well, but you did, and you snored loudly. <laughs> My snoring woke Wendy up. I'm thinking a two-ton stone moving makes some noise, right? I mean, when I get up early in the morning and I go fix coffee, you ever things that just make noise, you try to do them softly? You can't grind whole bean coffee softly. I have taken my grinder out into the room farthest away from where Wendy sleeps, and I have plugged it in before, and I have gotten like couch pillows, and I have covered the couch pillow, covered with couch pillows, and reached my hand down inside it and pushed the button. Anything to try to muffle the sound. There are just some things that make noise, like rolling a two-ton stone. <laughs> my guess is the guards would have been awoken. Here's maybe possibly the best reason why that's not true. The disciples, history tells us, all died violent deaths except for one. So they died violently for a lie. They steal the body. They tell everybody, no, really, Jesus rose from the dead. Christianity is true. Let's all follow him. And then they all die violently. I mean, like, one of them was pulled apart, beheaded, boiled in oil. I mean, at what point do you go, mercy? I was just kidding, dude. I'll show you where the body is. Just untie me from the four horses before you say giddy up. Finally, the Bible says that the disciples were terrified when Jesus was arrested. Mark 14, 51 to 52. They denied Jesus while he was on trial. Mark 14, 66 through 72. And they hid away after Jesus died. John 20, 19. Hard to believe that they would have had the courage to pull this theory off. Second empty tomb theory says that it was, the body was stolen by the authorities. And this one just makes me go, what? They actually believed that the Roman or Jewish authorities took the body and hid it so that no one could say a resurrection happened. So you're, you're taking the body and you're putting it somewhere else to make the tomb empty so that people won't say there was a resurrection. Not smart people ruling back then, were they? Here's why it's wrong. All they had to do was produce the body. And you can't produce what you do not have. 
The last empty tomb theory says this. It's called the swoon theory. That's a fun word to say. Everybody goes, swoon. Yeah, you sound stupid when you say that, but it was great. <laughs> here's, what the swoon theory, here's what the swoon theory says. Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just fainted. He just fainted. He was buried alive, and the, the coolness of the, of the tomb revived him. Okay, let's just recap. For that to happen, Jesus had to go through six trials, a scourging. You know what scourging is, correct? You get a whip, you get a lot of pieces of leather, you put bits of broken glass and pottery, and when they would whip the person, they would actually whip them, twist it, and jerk so that they could be sure to pull chunks of skin off. So when Jesus is scourged 39 times because they were so nice, they didn't want to do it 40 because they thought 40 might kill you. So like in the South, when you hear people say, I'm going to beat you within an inch of your life, it's kind of like scourging, okay? I'm going to hit you until you're almost dead, and I'm going to stop because we don't want to be guilty of murder. I mean, we're okay with like making you look like hamburger meat, but we don't want to be guilty of murder because we fear God. <laughs> so he'd have, have to go through that, then carry a 110-pound crossbeam to his crucifixion. Have spikes driven through his hands and feet, a crown of hard thorns thrust on his scalp, a spear pushed into his side. Four Roman executioners actually pronounced him dead. He had over 100 pounds of spices and gummy substance put on him in burial preparation, yet somehow managed to breathe through all of that, then was put in the tomb. He would have to break out of the garments. He would have to move a two-ton stone on his own and then defeat an entire Roman guard which the Bible says is at least 16. In Acts chapter 12, verse 4, they actually um, sent a guard of 4 times 4 to guard Peter. And it could go up as high as 100. So I'm not buying the swoon theory. I'm not buying any of these theories. I believe that when we, without the resurrection, we are empty. I believe that all of those theories are empty. And I believe there's only one plausible explanation for what happened that Sunday morning. God raised Jesus from the dead. Period. And with the resurrection, we are energized. We can now live our lives with passion. Our words are not useless. Our walk is not directionless. When he says if there's no resurrection, your preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, well, if there is a resurrection, then my preaching is not in vain. My words are not useless. Then my faith is not in vain. My walk is not directionless. We live with passion, and we can live with power. Romans 8, 11. How many of you are not morning people? How many of you are married to somebody who is a morning person and you're not? And they drive you crazy, don't they? I'm going to make it easier for them to drive you crazy. Here we go. Here's a verse, like if you're the spouse that is a morning person, when you wake up tomorrow, I want you just to roll over with all the morning breath, and I want you to read this verse to your non-morning person spouse and make sure you run when you're done, okay? Here's what it says, Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You just roll over and read that to them. 
I don't know why you're still laying in the bed. Because the Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead gives life to your mortal body. Rise up! And then run as fast as you possibly can. Because of the resurrection, we can live our lives with passion and we can live our lives with power. This verse says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead can raise your life from the ashes. The same spirit that moved that two-ton stone can move you in power. Gives life literally means to spring up. Now, the longer I live, the slower I get up, right? I watch my kids. They could be like laying somewhere just in an awkward position. You know, it's time to go get candy. They're up. I mean, I could be laying somewhere, and you could say, dude, you just want a million dollars, and all you got to do is come here. Okay, hold on. I'm coming. Man, this verse is like my kids getting up. It says the Spirit of God springs up in you. I mean, moves you. Whoa! Like this morning when... When God speaks through Richard, when he speaks through the word, and did pa- Patrick, I mean, he didn't wait. It's like his hands are in the air. He's like, dude, that's me. That's the power that we have because of the resurrection. And that is such good news. Everything hinges on the resurrection. You want to prove Christianity wrong? All you got to do is find a way to say the resurrection didn't happen. The man that we're talking about this morning, Josh McDowell, the reason he even became a Christian is because he was an atheist and he decided, I'm going to prove Christianity wrong. I'm going to do the world a favor. I'm going to get rid of these crazy people. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to prove the resurrection didn't happen. And his study was what led to him being saved because he realized these theories are stupid. They make no sense the resurrection is true. And because it is, we, have, we can live energized. So, number three. Everyone hopes for a sign. Everything hinges on a sign. And I believe that every soul hangs in the balance over a sign. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Before we read it, let me just set the stage here and tell you this. Belief is more than logic. After looking at all these attempts of man to refute the resurrection, it's not much of a leap to accept the fact that the resurrection happened. I mean, unless you just don't want to, you got no other shot. There's no other option. All the theories that man has tried for thousands of years don't hold any water. It's not much of a logical leap to say, oh, well, okay, then the resurrection is true. And for some of us, it's an awesome feeling to find that believing in an actual physical resurrection of Jesus is a logical thing, not a crazy thing, because your friends think you're crazy, right? They think you are nuts. They think that you have taken your brains out of your head and kicked them to the curb and said, now I follow Jesus. You should too. I mean, isn't it a great liberating thing to know that what we believe actually makes some sense? I mean, you could look at your friends and when they bring up the resurrection, you go, like, what? You got a better theory? You think you just like swooned? (laughs) They don't have a better theory. And so it is, in a sense, it's very liberating to know that what we believe makes sense. But here's the deal. Coming to grips with the logic of the resurrection isn't enough. We must come to grips with the Lord of the resurrection. Belief is more than logic because belief is more about the Lord 
Romans 10, verse 9, says this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So right now, every one of us are standing before this gaping hole where the body of Jesus used to be, and we have to come to terms with what the resurrection really means. And here's what it means. Jesus is Lord. Romans 1, 4 says this. We'll start in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is what validated Jesus as a son of God. And so the resurrection does not mean that we just get together and sing songs. The resurrection means that Jesus Christ is Lord. The empty tomb validates everything he claimed and frustrates everything we claim. Here's what I mean by that. Because he rose, his claim to be the only way to God is true. And because he rose, our claims that there could be lots of ways to God is false. The resurrection validates everything Jesus said. The bottom line is this. We cannot claim the resurrection if we're not willing to crown the resurrected. One more time. You can't claim the resurrection if you're not willing to crown the resurrected. And people do it all the time. All across the world today, people are going to be applauding what was without a doubt the greatest act in human history. Some years ago, I was in a church, and um, they were doing their Easter presentation, and it was phenomenal. And I had a vision. I don't have lots of visions, but I had this vision as I sat there in the church. I, I, could, see, I could see just an endless line of tombs that were empty. And I could see people that had walked out of those tombs and they were, they were clapping, they were applauding the one empty tomb. And I was like, God, that's awesome. Man, that's so cool. That's what we're doing right now, God. I mean, we're applauding, we're clapping. And then in my vision, I saw like lights kind of dimming and all those, all those people that were clapping, they just turned and walked back into their tombs and sealed the, the opening. That is what we think we can do with a resurrection. That it's just a moment, a one, it's a one day. It's a chance for us to come together and watch a great passion play with a great storyline and have some effects. We have missed the point of the resurrection. It is not about an Easter play. It is about the fact that Jesus is Lord, and what will you do with that? Because it's not enough to believe. According to Romans 10, 9, that's just 50% of the equation. Right? You've got to believe in your heart that he was risen from the dead. And most of us in here, I mean, I'm looking at you. And if you look at the person next to you, you would probably agree. They look pretty smart, right? Right? Most of us are going to walk out of here today and we're going to say, I've never heard it so clear. I've never had so much confidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. 
And we're going to think that's enough. But Romans 10, 9 says it's not enough. That you have to believe that, sure, but what else do you have to do? Confess with your mouth. What? Jesus was risen from the dead. Like, just go to everybody. Hey, Jesus was risen from the dead. He rose. He rose. He rose. He rose. This is starting to sound pretty familiar, isn't it? Because this is what we do on Easter. He rose. He, he's risen. He's risen. Everybody goes, yeah! Starts clapping and going nuts. But who's walking around saying Jesus is Lord? He's Lord of my life. I'm bowing my knee. Is he Lord of your life? Will you bow your knee? And I'm going to tell you something. You can hate me all day long. I didn't write it. The Bible says if you're not willing to do that, you can believe in a resurrection all day long. You won't go to heaven. You won't go. Because it's the life that yields to him as Lord. That's the life that goes to heaven. He rose again to once and for all establish himself as Lord and King and to give the world the only sign that they would ever need to know that he is able to save them completely. So the only question we have today is will we bow our knees and yield our lives to a resurrected Lord? And I can't answer that question for you. But I can for me. I'm going to bow my knee. And the way I live my life is going to be a direct result of who's leading my life. He is my Lord. My God is not dead. He is alive. And he rules me. He is my Lord. Is he your Lord? Or do you find yourself reading the Bible, hearing people teach, and saying, that's so good, and then just doing whatever you want to do with your life? That is not a life ruled by the lordship of a risen Savior. And so this morning, before we get out of here, before we go do the things that Christians do, before you walk out of here and grab one of those signs that you're going to put in your yard about the May 8th election and how you're going to vote yes and let everybody know that you're voting yes. That's a great thing to do, right? Before we go and eat lunch somewhere. And we smile at all the Christians that are in there. Because we got a little inside secret. It's Easter. And it's not about the bunny. No, it's not about the bunny. Before we can do all the things that Christians do. How about we wrestle this one question to the ground in here. Where it's really hot. But not as hot as where some of us might be going. Let's wrestle this question to the ground. Is he Lord of your life? And if he's not, today is the day of your salvation. Because you have all that you need to believe that he was actually raised from the dead. The only thing lacking is simply bowing your will and saying, over everything in my life, Jesus you can be Lord. My finances, my direction, my passions, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, my marriage that is awful. My family member who is dying. Over all that, you can be Lord.